well, let's jump into the message today. We are uh, concluding the series today that we've entitled Relationship Status. Have you enjoyed the series so far, church? Now, uh, here's the premise of the series, uh, that, that we're all in different relationship statuses, some single, some married, some dating, some widowed, some divorced, so we're just in, 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 in a arrived different statuses here in a room this size. Now, no matter what relationship status you hold, I believe that God has you right where he wants you, and I believe that you are to find contentment in the season that you're in. That's the premise of this series. We get it from our theme verse uh, found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. It says this, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be, say it with me, church, content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do Everything through Christ who gives me strength. So what we've been talking about in this series, uh, if the series had a subtitle, it would be this, finding contentment in this season. Finding contentment in your current season that you're in. You see, contentment is something that very few people ever achieve. We see it all throughout our, our culture and society. We have become obsessed with that which is next, what's coming down the road. We're looking ahead and as a society, we have elevated and prioritized the next thing over the current thing, that which is right in front of us. We have rejected contentment and instead pursued the next thing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important to look down the field and to have a vision, a clear vision for your life. But if all we do is focus on what's next, we miss out on what's right in front of you right now. I believe God's calling us to be content in this season, in your current relationship status so we've been hitting these three different relationship statuses uh, that we all hold in the room. We have some that are single. Come on, single. Where are you at, single people? Come on. Yes. She's, she's mad about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Dating. How many dating people have we got in the room? It's always the most awkward. It's like, do we, are we a thing? Should, should we, should we? Okay, married people, where you at? I love it. Man, if, if I, I appreciate you uh, married couples for, for, for sticking with us through this series. Uh, I know uh, you got to hear about the singleness and dating. Man, if I was downtown preaching, this would have hit so hard the first couple weeks, but uh, I know where we are. So this, this message is for you guys. Uh, but just to recap, the first week we talked about singleness, godly singleness, and whether you're single by choice or single by circumstance, that the Lord wants to bring contentment to you in this current season of singlehood. Now, we looked at the story of Ruth, and we, we, we uh, learned from her how to find contentment in singleness, regardless of how you became single, like Ruth was widowed, regardless of how you became single, you can find contentment in that. And then last week, we spoke to those who were in a dating relationship. We looked at the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And we, we looked at how Jesus uh, gave her some life-changing dating advice. He, he basically said this to her, listen, I know that you're searching for love, and you might think that you're falling in love. You're, you're, you've been with six people now. Could it be that you are simply thirsty and reaching for something that will satisfy and quench your thirst? Now, now, when we're thirsty, we accept whatever will come our way to, to quench our thirst. But here's the reality. It won't satisfy us, 
The only thing that will satisfy our thirst is what Jesus told this woman at the well, and that is the true living water, the living water of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will satisfy us. So today we're going to transition here and talk to those who are married, single and content, dating and satisfied, and today the title of the message is Married and in Covenant. Married and in Covenant, if you're taking message notes. Let's pray. We'll jump into it. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray you'd speak to our hearts, finding contentment in our current season, especially to those who are in a married relationship. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Come on, church. Said, Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, my wife and I, this April, will celebrate 15 years of marriage. I uh, want to show you our, uh, this, okay, let's just look at this. I mean, uh, okay, easy. I'm right here, okay, easy. I mean, if I saw your wedding pictures, I mean, I might have a similar reaction. Uh, yeah, I was pretty happy about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. So that, that's a little bit of flashback there. We were 22 years old. We were young. Um, 15 years in April. And I kind of wrote this down just thinking about my life here. 15 years, three kids, three dogs, five horses, five cows. Many chickens and barn cats, six houses, six cities, one state, the great state of Texas, three churches, many jobs, many friends, and one good life together. That's my little recap of our marriage. Now, I'm sure uh, if you're married in the room, you would say that uh, marriage is a wild ride, right? It's like a roller coaster, many ups and downs, some thrills, and some parts you really don't care for, and you just occasionally throw up at times, you know? It's just... But the ride is worth it, right? The ride is worth it. Someone once told me, I love this, that marriage is a three-ring circus. You have the engagement ring, you have the wedding ring, and you have suffering. Anybody can testify to that right there. You know, marriage is fun and, and it's challenging at times. It kind of reminds me of, of our, our home that we currently live in. We uh, a couple years back, bought a 13-acre uh, ranch and had a small 20-year-old uh, country home on there. The ranch had not been maintained and totally overgrown of this, this old country house on there. Now, we loved the property, so we, we kind of took it and uh, fixed it up and kind of made it into what it is. Uh, but that home, one thing we wanted to do was to kind of change the footprint and uh, with three kids and add a bedroom, which eliminated an office, but I wanted a home office, so we, we ended up attaching a home office onto uh, our house. Well, um, one thing I started noticing after that, that remodel is I started noticing these cracks in our master bedroom, cracks that were not there previously, and, and, I, and I'm semi-handy. You know, I can, I can fix a lot of things, do a lot of things. I'm no expert, but so I just, you know, that's easy, it's just some patchwork, so I, I fixed the cracks and, and, uh, and painted it up and made it look new, and it was, it was great until a couple months went by and those dang cracks came back, right? I said, man, that's weird, I just fixed that, let me call a painter, okay, let me call an expert. So I called in a painter, and painter came in and, and fixed the cracks and made it look good, just like I did, you know, just made it look good. I thought maybe he'd have a better fix. Couple months went by and those cracks came right back, right? So then I hired a, a professional contractor. I said, Would you just tell me what's going on here? We tried to fix it, it's not working. And he said this He said that the cracks that you have are not from paint 
and they won't be fixed with paint. These are settling cracks caused by the addition of your home in the office. He said the cracks are not the problem. The cracks are the symptom to the problem. Your problem is that you have a shifting foundation due to the addition of your home office. He said until the foundation fully settles, you will continually be doing patchwork on the cracks. What I've noticed in many marriages is that there are cracks in the relationship that we all see, they're visible. So what do we do? We treat the cracks when in reality the cracks are not the problem, they're a symptom to a bigger problem. But all of our time and attention and focus is going on to the cracks. Fix the bigger problem and the cracks, they'll go away. But if you ignore the bigger problem, you will be doing patchwork until you can't do it any longer. To which many people get divorced. Divorce is at an all-time high. Divorce is an example of simply treating cracks but failing to address the bigger issue. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 50% of first marriages end in divorce while 67% of second marriages end in divorce. There are cracks in the relationship, and because there are cracks, we throw, we, we throw out the marriage instead of dealing with the r- real problem, which it would be as if I got rid of my house and burned it to the ground just because there were some cracks. I'd, I'd get rid of my house that I, I have invested so much into just because there are a few cracks in the wall. Wouldn't it make more sense to address the bigger issue so that I can retain my investment, all the work that I've put into that house and money. I want to talk today about one word that I believe is forgotten about in many marriages, and that word is this. It's covenant. It's covenant. Why do we not quit on our marriage? It's because we are in a marriage covenant. Today, I want to help you find contentment in your marriage, and you will find it through the covenant in your marriage. I just want to warn you kind of straight out the gate here today. I want to say some things that are probably going to be controversial, probably going to be offensive, and here's why. Because they're biblical. And even when I wrote this message, I was like, well, that sounds a little weird. You know, that, well, that one feels a little weird writing that one down, and I kind of had to challenge myself on it, and I thought about it, and I'm like, I am so conditioned by culture, and, and we are. We hear something that's biblical, and we go, well, that, that doesn't sound right. Well, yeah, because our culture has conditioned us to hear a certain way, but if you look at it from a biblical standpoint, it's actually biblical. So go with me on some of these points today, but here we go. We'll start out here. Malachi 2.14, she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. In this passage, there is a conversation going on about divorce, finding grounds, finding means for a divorce here. And the Lord says, you can't end the marriage. Why? Because you're in a marriage covenant. That's why you can't end the marriage. You see, when you married your spouse, a covenant was formed. When you and your spouse got married, a covenant was formed. And this is the theological foundation for any marriage right here, and that is a covenant. That's the theological foundation for a marriage. It's not about the papers that you sign on your wedding day. It's not about the seal on your wedding certificate from the state that holds any power. It's about the covenant that you made on your wedding day, a covenant between you, your spouse, and with God Almighty. You know, whenever God wanted to establish anything official with his people, he would do so through a covenant. So we have Abraham. He formed the Abrahamic covenant. We have David, the Davidic covenant. We have Noah, the the Noahic covenant. 
we have the new church, the new covenant. This is how God operated. And this is what covenant is defined as. Here it is. I want you to see this definition. Here's a covenant. It's a divinely created relational bond. It's a divinely created relational bond between God and man. Marriage is not the only place we see covenants in and throughout Scripture. We see covenants when God establishes something official between himself and with mankind by which he wants to operate. So he, he forms a covenant between God and man and says, here's how this relationship is supposed to operate. The reason this is significant, and you got to hear me on this, is because covenants have warranties. Covenants have warranties. For example, you buy a new appliance for your home, it comes with a manufacturer's warranty. If something goes wrong with the product, while it is under the warranty, the warranty covers the replacement. However, if the product is used for any purpose for other than which it was created to operate, it voids the warranty. So think about it this way. Covenants have defined warranties because covenants are divinely created bonds. As long as the covenant is operating by means of which it was established between God and man, it stand, God will stand behind that warranty. The moment the relationship is not operating the way that it was established, the warranty can be voided and chaos will ensue. Covenants, they're powerful. You want to know why you can't find contentment in your marriage? Maybe you are operating outside of the covenant. I want to show you an example in Scripture, a powerful example of a covenant between God and man. It's found when we look at the story of David and Goliath. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard about this one before. It's found in 1 Samuel 17. We see this young shepherd boy, a teenager, conquered this giant Goliath. And if I asked you, man, how, did, how, did, how do you think David won that battle? Some might say, well, he had a, he had a faith in God. Or someone might say, man, he is, he's, he's accurate with a slingshot and it was just a lucky shot, right? I mean, you, there might be different answers. You probably wouldn't say it this way. This is why I think David won. See, Goliath was nine feet tall, six inches. Nine feet, six inches tall. He'd never been defeated. He was a, a war hero and a warrior. He, he wore a hundred pounds of armor. He was feared by everyone. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes out and he terrorizes the Israelite people and challenged anyone to a fight. And this young shepherd boy, this teenager boy named David, he came looking for the fight. He challenged him. And we see this in 1 Samuel 17, first in verse 26, but also in verse 36. David says the same thing. Check this out. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, while all the other Israelites were staring at Goliath in his eyes and living in fear, David walks onto the scene and he says, he hadn't been to the doctor. <laughs> They're looking up here. He's looking down here. He ain't been to the doctor. <laughs> see, there was a covenant that was made that Goliath did not have, but David did. In other words, Goliath had not been covenantally covered. You see, circumcision was a covenant made between God and man. And Goliath did not have the covenant. And David knew that he didn't have the covenant, obviously. And that was his weakness. You see, covenant is covering. 
David was covered by Goliath. Or, sorry, David was covered by God. Goliath was not covered by God. It's like holding an umbrella over your head when it's raining. It doesn't stop the rain. It stops the rain from raining on you. That's covering. You see, covenants provide covering. And they're designed for God to step into the situation that you are currently in by means of his relationship into this relationship because covenants are how he operates all throughout history. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a part of the new covenant. Through Jesus, you are now a part of his divine covenant and divine covering by your relationship through Jesus. Meaning this, if you're married today, your marriage is covered by God. I want to I help you today find contentment in this season. And for those who are married, I want to help you find contentment by looking at the covenant of marriage. See, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. Maybe you've heard this before, but you can have a contract without a personal relationship, but you can't have a covenant without a personal relationship. Another thing, if one, in a contract, if one party doesn't hold up their end of the deal, the other party is relinquished of their responsibilities, not in a, not in a covenant. No matter what the other party says or does, you are still held to the same agreement that you made. So the Bible says, she is your wife by covenant. I want to help define today what a covenant is. Anytime you see a covenant in place, you will see five components in the covenant. I want to give you these five components to a covenant as we learn how to have contentment in this season. The first thing is this, if you're taking message notes, here we go. First thing is this, covenants are transcendent. Covenants are transcendent. Transcendent means that this was not created by man, this was created by God. It means that God authored and God ordained this agreement. Let me say it this way. That might help you and make sense for you in your current season. Marriage is God's idea, not your idea. Marriage is God's idea. So think about it this way. Marriage is not a humanly established institution. It is for humans, but not established by humans. That's why in Matthew 19, Jesus said this, what God has put together let no man separate. God did this. God married you guys together. God put you in the relationship. This was his doing. This was his idea, not yours, of which some of you are thinking right now, so we have God to blame for this train wreck? You know, I, no, I'm not going there, but, but it was God's idea, okay? It was God's idea. So let me, let me say it another way for you. Might be a stronger way, but don't go to the church for marriage and then go to the courthouse for divorce, if God doesn't give you a legitimate reason for divorce, yet he's the one who ordained your marriage, well, you can't go to man to disavow what God himself has established. Honestly, I think when people get married, they forget all about or ignore the God part of the marriage. And I do weddings all the time, and sometimes I feel like I'm an inconvenience for being there. I really feel that way at many marriages that I perform. Because they're so focused on the venue. They're so focused on the food and the cake and the wedding party and music. They don't stop to think about how truly, deeply spiritual a wedding ceremony is. And the commitment that they're about to make to another person 
before the God of the universe. Then they get married and hardships come their way in their life. And because there was not a spiritual component to their marriage, divorce is an easy option. It's a no-brainer because this thing's not spiritual. It's, well, it's easy when God's never a part of the marriage to get a divorce. I think about myself, I mean, pastors, we don't perform wedding ceremonies because we offer a free service and a wedding venue that looks cute and has a great view. No, we perform marriage ceremonies because we are establishing a spiritual covenant between two people and with God. That's why we're there. A marriage covenant is transcendent. To better understand this, we need to go back to the origin of marriage that we find in the beginning of time in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 actually give us three reasons for the establishment of marriage. I want to give it to you real quick. I love these three points. We'll read it together too. But here's the first reason we see in Genesis 1. It's for reflection. Genesis 1, 26, God says this, let us make mankind in our image. Well, who's the us? It's God, but it's the Godhead. It's the Trinity. There's multiple people there in the beginning. It wasn't just God. It was the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three equal persons. I heard this the other day. Maybe it'll help you. I've never heard this analogy before, but the Trinity is like a pretzel. The first hole is not the second hole. The second hole is not the third hole, and the third hole is not the first hole, yet they're all connected to the same dough. (laughs) That helps. That helps. It's pretty accurate. Your life and your marriage, hear me on this, should reflect God. Your life and your marriage, you were created to reflect God. So when you go to work, when you go on a date, people should see God in you. That's powerful. Here's the second thing we see, replication. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. And all the gentlemen said, amen. You know, that's a good spot for that one. All right, what do, what do we multiply in? What are we multiplying is the question I want to ask. Well, we're not multiplying ourselves. We're multiplying his image. The idea behind multiplication would be to infuse God into the world. It's a generational manifestation of God into the world that we live in. So if you have four kids, send one north, send one south, one east, one west, we are infusing God all throughout the country. That's the idea that we are replicating God, multiplying God into this universe. All right, here's the third one, ruling, Genesis 1.28. So man, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, if you are a hunter, I've never found a more biblical verse than that right there, okay? Other translations call this dominion. Here's what God did. God created man in the physical, right here we all see man in the physical, so that the spiritual could come visible in our time and our space, We're ruling over creation at the same time implementing the image of God throughout creation. So when we look at the origin of marriage, we see that marriage covenant, it's transcendent. It's God-ordained and God-defined. This is why you can't have gay marriage. Because gay marriage does not look like God. It's not how God defines marriage. You have to come up with your own idea of what marriage is and your own belief system in marriage to have a gay marriage. It's not biblical and it's not the image of God. If you're married today, be content in the fact that God has established your marriage and it was his idea 
And the marriage that you have is to reflect God. That's the first thing, that covenants are transcendent. Here's a second one as we move forward. Covenants have order. Covenants have order. This is one of those that's going to just, you just got to go with me, okay? You got to hear me on this. And I, I promise you, I'll wrap this thing up. Covenants fall under a hierarchy or a chain of command. Order is biblical. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve second to be the partner to Adam. In God's economy, there would not be anyone who would be single in God's economy. You see, before sin entered, there was no singleness. Singleness happened when sin entered. Now, I understand there are some here who are single by choice. I am not talking about you. But you got to hear this principle here. Singleness is present when sin is present. Again, I'm not saying that if you're single, you're in sin. But here's what I am saying. Without sin, there would be no death. Without death, there would be no widows. Without sin, there would be no affairs. Without affairs, there would be no divorce. Only sin creates singleness. So what does God do? God creates order through a chain of command. God creates Adam before he creates Eve. Why? Hear me. Because he wants to hold the man responsible for the relationship. So God creates man first in Genesis 1. He gives him a garden to tend to, and he gives him trees to live off of. He tells him, eat from any tree in here except for one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, also known as the tree of Google. Okay, let's just not live off that tree right there. But here's what he's doing. Man, I don't want you to live on your own understanding and your own reasoning. I want you to live off revelation from me and revelation alone. Then this part's kind of fun. Then God asks Adam, I want you to take dominion over creation. And how we're going to do that is I'm going to bring every animal to you and you're going to name every single animal. Wouldn't that be a fun job, you know? But I wonder how some of them happened. Like he, he must have like started out with like hippopotamus, right? That would have been for sure towards the front. And then you get to like dog and cat. Like it's just like he just ran out of ideas. Like I don't, dog, I don't know. It's just like so creative in the beginning. So that's kind of a fun process. He names all the animals and then God decides it's time to create woman. So he puts Adam in a deep sleep, and what we read in our English translation is that he removes a rib from his side. But the actual Hebrew word here, and the actual Hebrew translation, translation is he actually removes Adam's side. Not a rib, he moves Adam's side, which by the way, that's totally a myth. I, I looked it up. It's a myth that we have, that men have one more rib than women. You've heard that myth? That's a myth. No. He actually removed Adam's side from him. Now Adam's half the man he used to be. Sad story. Okay. Um, I'm terrible today. and I'm, I'm like, They're not hitting as hard as our first service was. I'm just going to keep going. All right. Um, first service thought I was way funnier than you guys do, but that's fine. Um, when God created Adam, when God created Adam, God made Adam out of dirt. We, we know he just kind of threw up some dirt, right? That's, that explains so much, right, for men. We just, just threw up dirt, just threw it up. And the word used here for creation of woman is God did not throw up dirt to create woman. He fashioned her together to create woman, right? Amen. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's, I mean, that's biblical. Thank God for that. Um, so then God brings woman, Eve, to Adam to name her. 
He allowed Adam, he just named all the animals, now he gets to name this woman. Her name comes out of the name Adam, comes out of man. That's where we get, that's where we get woman taking the last name of the man from this tradition right here. And here, God performs the first wedding, the first wedding vows. And I love this part. We see it right here in Genesis 2, 24. This is where we see that man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right? That's why a man leaves his father and mother, united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. Now, let's talk about this. Now, notice how they become, the two become one, but the two do not become the same. The two become one. Why? Because we're made in his image, and the Trinity of God is unified, when I do a wedding, I always tell them, you came in as two separate be- beings, but you are leaving here today as one. When you become married, you don't lose your uniqueness. Instead, your weirdness and quirks and uniqueness is blended in with someone else who's weird and has quirks and their uniqueness, and you become one, but you hang on to your uniqueness. Look at the Trinity. The Father's not the same as the Son. The Son's not the same as the Spirit. But yet, they're each unique in their expression, but they're still one. Now, when we see Satan show up in the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 3, his whole goal, hear me on this, is to break up what God has united. Satan wants to disrupt the order. Covenants are order. Satan comes to disrupt the order and instill chaos. He wants to destroy and dismantle the the chain of command that God has established. This is why Satan doesn't go to Adam to tempt Adam with the apple. He goes to Eve. Not that she was the weaker person. He went there because he wanted to disrupt the order. Notice what happens. This is where it went wrong. Eve became the decision maker on her own. And Adam was simply responding to her decision. The roles were flipped. Sin entered in. But here's still what is interesting. God knew what happened. He saw the whole thing go down. He saw Satan go to Eve. He saw Eve go to Adam. He saw this all take place. And yet when God comes to to encounter them and and approach them after they had sin, God did not come in and say, hey, where are y'all at? Hey, guys, come here. I got to talk to you. Where are y'all at? No, he says, Genesis 3, 9, but the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? This is the order that God established. The man is responsible for the family, not the woman. It's not that God has a problem with women. It's just that He holds the man responsible because he believes in order, and this is the order that God put in place. Let me show it to you in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see the order? Do you see the chain of command? Do you see the hierarchy here? Okay. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Okay, so, so let me say this. This is not related to quality of being. This is relating to distinction of function. 
We're not talking about the quality of being woman. We're talking about the distinction of function, how they're supposed to function. This is even represented throughout the Trinity. When Jesus was here on earth, he said, I came to do my Father's will. When the Holy Spirit came, he said, I came to glorify Christ. There is a hierarchy and a chain of command even in the Trinity. You see, it's important. Order is important because the moment you break the chain, you lose the blessing. The moment you break the order that God established in your life and in your marriage, you break the blessing over your life and over your marriage. Again, the chain of command is not favoring one over the other. You got to hear me. Genesis 2.18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we've always kind of read that in the English and said, isn't that cute? That woman is to help man, right? Well, actually, the Hebrew word here for helper, the original language, is this right here. Helper is an essential collaborator. Man, your wife is not the baby maker, the the homemaker, the the food maker. (laughs) Your wife is an essential collaborator. Think about it this way. Okay, man, you now have half of you missing. Think about this in, in, in Adam and Eve. Half of you now is missing, but you need to get back what you lost when you lost your other half. Okay, so God takes your other half, and he makes woman with it, but adds to it and gives her what you did not previously have. So now when you get back what you lost, you're going to get back what you never had, Because she's going to be a central collaborator, ensuring that you will become exactly what God created you to be. Any man who doesn't listen to his wife's heart or invite her unique perspective in on a situation is automatically flawed and is unable to receive the blessing that God wants to bring to that person. The hierarchy is not an oppressive order, it's an operative order. It's how we're supposed to function. Where the two function together as one before God. I got to say this, ladies, before you get upset. Your husband is not the final say-so anyways. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, the moment your husband steps out of line with the Lord, he has stepped out of legitimate authority over you. Men get upset and say, my wife won't submit to me. Usually in a country accent, more or less how I envision it, like (laughs) backwoods. Um, Well, your wife won't submit to you because she's never seen you submit to anybody. Wives should see you submitting to the Lord so that they know what submission looks like and they know that they're in good hands. How do you find contentment in marriage? Obey the order that God created. Chaos comes when there is disorder. Obey God's order, and you will enjoy peace in your marriage. Okay, so covenants are transcendent. Covenants have order. Covenants have rules. There's rules to covenants. There are governing guidelines by which covenants operate under. And I think there's really two that I want to highlight today. Found in Ephesians 5, 33, I think they're all summed up in these two. Every husband must love his wife as himself. For some men, that's a lot of love because they really love themselves. And every wife 
must respect her husband. It boils down to two things, love and respect. Did you know that there is no commandment in the Bible for a wife to love her husband? Not one. But we do have many commandments for husbands to love their wives. So we need to define what love is. I mean, we love a lot of things. We love food. We love hunting. We love sports, football. I mean, we love a lot of things. Well, biblical love, I want you to share this definition right here. Biblical love is the decision to righteously, compassionately, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another. That's biblical love. And another part, the Bible says that the greatest among you shall serve. The greatest among you shall, shall serve. So if you take the hierarchy that God established here, men, are you the greatest in your household? Well, then you should serve your spouse. Your wife should feel, see, and hear you serving her. Your wife's joy and pleasure and well-being should be your highest concern. Because love demonstrates it does not only articulate. It demonstrates. Biblical love is where you make a conscious decision to love. That's how we can love our enemies. Because we don't love out of emotion. We love out of a decision. Now, woman, you are commanded to respect your husband. That means to hold in high esteem and honor to respect him. You know, a woman's need is in her heart, but a man's need is in his head. Men have such big egos. Can we all agree on that, right? I mean, we have such big egos that we will lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Like, that's how egotistical we can be, right? We'll lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about us. So ladies, there's some pastoral advice for you. You are to feed your husband's ego. They are to feed your heart. You are to feed their ego. I want to show it to you. There's a biblical verse to support this. 1 Peter 3, 6 says this. Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now that's, that's a bit extreme. I understand that. I, I looked up other translations of this, and the other translation said Master. I felt like this was a little bit easier for you to digest this morning. <laughs> now, Sarah affirmed Abraham in his position as the head of their household. She verbally, out loud, declared his position. Your husband should know from your lips and from your life that he is held in high esteem. And get this, the Bible says that once she declared this to Abraham, she became pregnant at 90. Now, I know you might be saying, I don't want to become pregnant. All right, I get it, I get it, I get it. All right. Well, here's what she got when she honored her husband. She got a miracle. Because she was 90, her husband was 100. That's a miracle. So let me say it stronger. Women, if you are dishonoring to your husband, don't bother praying for a miracle. That might be strong, but the very next verse goes after the husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So let me say it strongly to the men. If you don't love your wife, don't bother praying. I know that's strong and sounds a little off, but let me show you what's happening here. 
When you break the rules of a marriage covenant, men refusing to love their wives and wives refusing to respect their husbands, relationship with God is fractured. If you want to find contentment in your marriage, learn how to follow the rules of the covenant. Men love your wives and wives respect your husbands because covenants have rules. Here's the fourth thing as we begin to wrap this thing up. Covenants have results. Covenants have results. This is the blessing and the curses that come with obedience and rejections of the covenants, where you obey it and where you decide not to obey it. Deuteronomy 29.9 says this, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything that you do. In other words, if you operate within the covenant, then the covenant brings blessing. If you operate outside of the covenant, the covenant brings cursing. You get to decide what the marriage will look like. How you operate within the covenant determines the results. You know, the Bible takes unity in marriage very seriously. I just want to show you how serious unity is to God. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says this, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Meaning this, if there is an issue in your marriage, you and your spouse are not seeing eye to eye, maybe there's a challenge that you're up against. The Bible's so serious, what that verse is telling us is do not deprive each other, it means sexually. Meaning this, there might come a time where You guys are not seeing eye to eye. The Bible says, I take unity so seriously, you guys need to stop having intimacy until you figure out this issue. Be united in it, but that's how serious we take it. The results that you're experiencing in your marriage point to whether or not you're honoring the covenant. If you want to find contentment in your marriage, follow the terms of the covenant. If you do, you stay within warranty and receive the blessing of the covenant. So if you're experiencing discontentment today, maybe you're operating outside of the covenant and you both need to come together, you need to make some changes and get on the same page in your marriage. Here's the fifth and final thing. We'll wrap it up with this one. Covenants are generational. Covenants are generational. Many times throughout scripture, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's taken a generational lineage And he's saying this, that I have covenants with these people. Meaning this, I made a covenant with them, but hear me on this, it affects you. The covenant I made with them, it will affect you. See, covenants that we make today, they don't only affect you, they will affect those who come after you. I would argue that the reasons we're seeing the breakdown of marriage in our society is because we have a complete abandonment of covenant. You need to understand that this covenant that you and your spouse made is not only about you. It's about your kids. It's about your grandkids and those that come after them. I'm telling you right now, for the sake of your heritage, you need to fight for your marriage. For the sake of your kids, for the sake of your grandkids, fight for your marriage. Nehemiah 4.14 says this, Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. If we don't fight for our marriages today, our future generations will be in trouble tomorrow. 
when I think about my heritage, my family heritage, I'm so thankful for those who came before me and before my wife. Uh, my dad's here this morning. Uh, my parents have been married for 45 years. Um, my wife's parents who are here, my in-laws, they've been married 46 years. My grandparents on my side, my dad's parents were uh, married 51 years, uh, actually 45 years, and my mom's parents were married 51 years. And then my wife's parents, you're here, um, Rob's parents were married 24 years before his dad passed, and Grampy and Grammy were married 67 years. Both my brothers are still married. Both Allie's siblings are still married. Okay. So here, here's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about heritage. Like, you're here in Zayo Church, and you keep coming back. I mean, like something, the Lord is touching your life. The Lord is blessing you. He's, he's making a difference in your life. There's something that has taken place here. It's God. It's, it's, it's a miracle. It's amazing. You're blessed by, by our ministry and the ministry of Zayo Church. And I believe, as I'm preparing for this message, I believe there's a direct correlation for our parents and our grandparents fighting for their marriage and deciding to raise their kids in a Christian home, and you're being blessed by it today. So I just want to say thank you to my parents, my in-laws, Grampy. Thank you for fighting for marriage and raising us in Christian homes. Your marriage matters more than you think it does. The covenant that you made on your wedding day holds power. Find contentment in the covenant. I want to pray for you as we close here. Just go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads where you're at. I just want you to take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about what was spoken today. Maybe there's something he wants to highlight to you and bring to mind. Just take a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit, what would you say to me through this message today? Father, we thank you for the institution of marriage. Father, you didn't want us to be alone. You didn't want us to be single. You wanted to, to create someone that we could do life with and enjoy life with. So, Father, we thank you for marriage today. We thank you, and we say that was a good idea. And, Father, we just pray for the marriages in the room today. We pray that you would bless the marriages that are in the room today, that you'd strengthen the marriages that are in the room today, those that are struggling, those that are hurting. Father, I just pray that you give them that continued fight and they'd be enabled to find contentment with the season that they're in. So Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts. I'll close like I always do. I want to pray for those who have never made a decision to trust Jesus, to trust Jesus 
and Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior to give their heart. There's got to be a moment where you decide, I can't do this anymore on my own. I got to surrender control of my life. I got to surrender control of my heart to you, God. If you've never made a decision like that, I want to lead you in a prayer. You can pray this to God. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, for my sin. Today I receive Jesus. I receive the faith of Jesus. I commit my life to Jesus. Today I give you my heart and I commit to following you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick clap and celebrate those who prayed that prayer. Amen.